We are all purposed, molded by the hands of our Creator. We all have different passions and callings, but we are, in a way, the same. We are all created for connection. We are made for deep, vulnerable, intimate relationships with one another, to sharpen one another, to learn from one another, and to reach the lost with the love of Jesus. This is discipleship. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, discipleship is our common purpose. We are all made for it. Good morning, everyone. Wash it down here. Uh, if we, we decided to th- show, throw that video up one more time. If you've been tracking with us these past six weeks, you've seen it plenty of times. But if this is your first time here, um, w- there is a reason we're showing it. And I love that video personally because, uh, one, it's well made, thanks to our media team. But two, hopefully it paints this picture that we actually were created for something. You know, um, And actually, we didn't get that. Uh, uh, picture just from ourselves. It actually comes from the Bible. Did y'all know that? In Jeremiah 18, um, God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, go to the potter's house and, and watch. And so <clears throat> Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and he says, and he's watching and he sees the potter throw a lump of clay onto the wheel and try to spin it into this beautiful vase. Uh, however, the clay does not run in his hands. And so he l- blumps it up again and Instead of making a beautiful vase, he makes this crude, thick pot. And God says to Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, have you, have you learned the lesson? Why did the clay not become this beautiful vase? Was it the potter's fault or was that the clay's fault? And the real picture here is that the clay actually decided what it became because it wouldn't run with the potter's original, original intention. And so the idea here is that the picture and the idea of God being the potter and whatever he says is just sovereignly done actually is kind of true, but it's only true if we respond to him in that way. You see, we uh, become only what he wants us to be if we submit, that, submit ourselves to him in that way. And so he makes us what he wants us to be if we want to be that. And so Jesus said at the end of uh, Matthew 28, we all know this verse, he says, go and make disciples. That is what God wants. That's what this series is about. We decided to spend Six weeks talking about discipleship because of this verse. Jesus said, go and make disciples of the nations. Disciples is what Jesus wants. And so my message today, really just up front, bottom line up front is this. Allow God to make you into a true disciple of Christ. 
we're made to follow Jesus. We're made to commit to Jesus. Uh, we're made to make other disciples of Jesus. That's what you're made for. Hint, the series title, made for it. Just in case you were wondering where that came from. You were made for this. But it starts by allowing him to make you and to make me into disciples of Christ first. And then he can use us to make disciples of others. So when, when Tyler kicked off this series, um, he laid out a definition of discipleship, which was this. He said, discipleship is one person helping others to become lifelong obedient followers of Jesus, who teach others to do the same. That is discipleship. But what I want to do today in these few short minutes is really circle back on what is a disciple. We know discipleship now. we got this structure of discipleship if you've been here. And if you haven't, definitely check out the, the, the podcast. But what is a disciple? And more importantly, who can be a disciple? Is it true that everyone in this room can be a disciple? Yes, it's true. However, there are certain conditions that Jesus lays out that we cannot overlook. And so, you know, in the Old Testament, um, there was something called the tabernacle. And it was what the Israelites uh, created according to the plans that God gave them. And if you read the last few chapters of Exodus, there are some very, very detailed plans on how to construct this structure called the tabernacle. But at the very tail end of Exodus, literally like the last paragraph, Exodus 40, we find out what the purpose of the tabernacle is for. So Exodus 40, verse 34, it says this, The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So they built this beautiful structure with many, like very detailed plans, all for one purpose and one purpose alone, which was that the glory of the Lord would fill it. That's the purpose. And actually without that, there were, without the glory of God filling that tabernacle, what would the point of it be? It'd be pointless. In fact, it would just be an overdone tent in the wilderness. And people passing by would think, why would you do all that? Like, like that's pretty foolish. People walking by would say that. And so really having laid out the structure of discipleship, I want to just talk about the life of a disciple. We need to have the structure and the life. Think about when God made Adam. He created you know, Adam from the dust, and he formed this structure, a body. But it wasn't until he breathed life into him that we have Adam. Okay, And so we need to make sure we understand the goal of all these different ways of discipleship. Um, the review, just quickly to review, uh, is we have... I came up with this very cool alliteration, but I came up with it too late. It's like the last sermon on the series, but I'll share it anyway. So we have peer-to-peer discipleship, which is discipleship with a friend. We have mentorship discipleship, which is discipleship with a father. We have evangelistic discipleship, which is discipleship going forward. Intensive discipleship, which is focused discipleship. See? See what I'm doing? (laughs) And the life of this whole thing is to follow last F there. It's to follow Jesus. So what is a disciple? Something that I think that the church has done today, uh, maybe, maybe especially in America, I don't know, uh, but it feels like the church has weakened the call of Christ, or, or rather maybe not shared the whole gospel, but part of it. I mean, more often than not, we hear things like, when it comes to come and follow Jesus, we hear things like, do you want like a better life? Well, then follow Jesus. Choose Jesus. Do you want blessing and healing? Well, follow Jesus. Do you want freedom from that feeling of guilt and shame, which is a good thing? Well, come follow Jesus. So there, there are good things. Um, but without the balance of what it actually means to follow Jesus, it's, it's an incomplete picture. 
And in fact, it's, it's probably more than an incomplete picture. It's a, it's a counterfeit picture. Like if I were to give, try to put some money in the bank and I had a coin and only had the heads but no tails, the bank would reject it because it has one side. And I, I, what I'm saying is I fear that sometimes we only get one side of the coin. And rarely do we partner that with, well, are you willing to suffer? Then follow Jesus. Are you willing to, are you willing to give up everything? Follow Jesus. Are you willing to potentially lose your job because now you stand for righteousness? Follow Jesus. Are you willing to maybe get persecuted and ridiculed by your family? Follow Jesus. <laughs> you see, it has to be both. Jesus actually gave us an example of this. In, in John chapter 8, the, uh, the woman caught in adultery, she comes to him, and I mean, we know the story, but <clears throat> she has this feeling of guilt and shame, and he says, what? Your sins are forgiven. There goes that feeling. But what else did he say? Now go and sin no more. It's both. And really, that's like the, the whole gospel in a nutshell, if you think about it. Your sins are forgiven, now go and sin no more. So we're going to look at the call of discipleship a little deeper so we can see uh, the whole picture of what it means to follow Jesus. So let's open up your Bibles. If you have it, please join me in Luke, to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, and we'll probably just read to the end of the chapter, verse 35. All right, it says this. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then... None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but, even, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay. All right. I think many of us may have read this before or maybe or at least we're familiar with it, um, but really when you slow down and think about it, Jesus said some pretty strong statements here, did not? Uh, and he mentions a few things that cause us a bit of alarm. And, and if we're honest, they, they kind of hurt deeply. And, and it may, may cause us to pause and say, Jesus, that's going a little too far. But nevertheless, he, nevertheless Christ gives his, his conditions for those who choose to follow him. So I'm going to read it, just a part of it slowly, and we're going to just break it down real quick. If, it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So that's kind of intense. And many people wish he never said this. So what does it mean to hate in this passage, right? Like, doesn't the word of God, I'm, like, I'm positive the word of God says we're supposed to love. Like, I know this. I, Ephesians 5.28, husbands, love your wives as your own body. Ephesians 6.2, honor your father and mother. So what is this? 
What is this hate all about? Um, well, the meaning of hate in this passage is actually a little different than the meaning we have today. Today, the word hate is like such an emotional word, like we feel it. And it means like malice or evil intent in the heart, like a desire to do harm or to offend or to insult. Um, but there's a verse in Psalm 139 I want to mention. Psalm 139 is like probably like everyone's top 10 psalms, like of the psalms. It's like on the, maybe even the top five. This is the one that's like, you know when I rise and when I lie down. You discern my thoughts from afar. Where can I go to flee from your spirit? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, that's, this is a sweet, sweet psalm. In the middle of all this sweetness, there's a little bit of sour. I don't know why the writer, the writer just threw this in here, but speaking about the enemies of God, he says this, you know, he's like, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. In the verse 22, about the enemies, he says, do I not hate them with perfect hatred? And then he goes, you know, search me and know me, O oh God. See if there's any wicked way. It's like, <laughs> there's some wicked way right there. I, I mean, but what is perfect hatred? <laughs> perfect hatred is a hatred that's actually free from the malice and evil intent. But actually, perfect hatred is it's in action and choice. It's action and choice. For example, that's why you find in Romans chapter 9, 13, there's another very strange verse. It says this, uh, God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We think that's kind of rude, uh, but he's not referring to the emotions or the, the feelings towards them. See, we're so wrapped up in feelings in this day and age that we can't help but feel it. But what he's saying is this, Jacob I chose, Esau I turned away from. And so when, when the psalmist says, you know, I hate them with a perfect hatred, he's saying, the enemies of God, I'm not going to align myself with them. If they're facing that way, I'm turning my back on them. One of the best examples of this is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 3. He says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. What he's saying here is this, lovers of money would not openly admit they hate God because they don't have a malice against God or animosity, but by their actions and choices, they've turned their back on God because they've decided to follow after money and not God. You see, I think it's obvious that the family is a holy thing. It's a holy thing, but what Christ is saying here and what, what the word of God is saying here is that if ever the claims of Christ conflict with the claims of your nearest and dearest, there's no question as to what the disciple of Jesus is supposed to do. There is no question. See, Jesus himself experienced this in Matthew 16. Uh, Simon Peter was probably one of his best friends on the earth, and there came a point where Jesus had to treat him as an enemy. When Peter goes to him and says, Jesus, I'm not going to let them take you to that cross. I won't let them kill you, whatever I do. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Touchy. <laughs> but really, what was happening? He, he was hating Peter with a perfect hatred. And he was saying, Peter, God's called me this way. And if you're going to try to get me to go the other way, I'm going to have to turn my back on you. I have no choice there. Uh, another scripture. I hope you hear a lot of scripture. I, I, my, my goal is to point back to the word of God. So uh, Matthew 10, he says this in verse 39. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So an illustration is like this. You can think of your love for your family, your father, your mother, your wife, your children, as the light of the stars. 
Is there light in the, in the stars? Absolutely. Do you love your family? Of course you do. I hope you do. But what happens when the sun rises? Where do the stars go? They disappear. Not because they were obliterated into like a black hole of hatred. That's not what happened. <laughs> uh, but it's because there's one star that shined brighter than them all. So much so that you can't even see the other stars. And that is what our love for Jesus should be, really. The, our love for Jesus should be so great that the light of the, the love that we have for our family almost looks like hatred. A good test of this, that I was thinking about this, and like, who is my closest friend on earth? And that's my wife on the live stream. Hi, Cheryl. Um, <laughs> if my wife, Cheryl, died and went to heaven, I would miss her tremendously on this earth. But I got to think, it's like, I, I'm not going to long for heaven just so I can see my wife again. I'm going to long for heaven so I can see Jesus, so I can be with Jesus. Have you passed that test? Can you say that of everyone you love so dearly on this earth? Because don't be deceived. God, he does not tolerate rivals. He will have the first place or none at all. He says, I'm Lord of all or I'm not Lord at all. These are his terms, okay? And he says in Luke 6.46, he goes and says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Or in other words, why are you calling me Lord, and I'm calling you this way, but you're going this way and trying to please your mom or trying to please your spouse, and you're not doing what I say? Why are you calling me Lord? What's the point of that? He doesn't tolerate rivals. So it feels like an extreme call, but once you've met the real Jesus, you actually see that it's, it's quite worth it. It's quite worth it. But we're not done yet. He goes on to say, so I'm going to read this next part again, but then slower. That's one of the problems that we have these days. We reread the Bible too fast. So he says again, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Disciple. So the second uh, part of the call of Christ is actually a little more frightening, isn't, isn't it? We have to hate ourselves now. Now we have to turn our back on ourselves. And we do not like hearing this. <clears throat> we usually try to find a way around it. I've heard this. Uh, and it's, well, wait a sec. What about love your neighbor as yourself? Doesn't that mean I have to love myself? Amen? Found a loophole. Uh, <laughs> No, that's talking about how you treat others. And, and that kind of points to the problem. This generation, the pressure is on us to be satisfied, to fulfill ourselves, right? Like, it's about me. It's what can I do to satisfy myself? I'm, I'm going to choose a career path that brings the best out of me. I'm going to follow my chosen path. I'm going to promote myself. I'm going to go after my dreams and ambitions. This is the mood of our age. And this, we're after ourselves. And... The call of Christ is so different. It's so different, and I'm afraid that the church at large is missing it. I hear sermons swirling around the Internet these days, um, and more often than not, it seems that the words of Christ and the call to true discipleship is disappearing, or, or rather, they're just harder to come by. Rather than hearing a sermon on come and die, you'll hear a sermon on go and live. God made you awesome, so go live an awesome life. Go live your life. It's amazing. And I just want to say that here at this church, we, we cannot forget the words of God. We cannot forget what he has said. 
we, we got to be people of the word. So the call to be a disciple of Jesus is to hate your own life, to pick up your cross, and to follow him. If this is not something that you do, listen carefully to the words of Christ. You cannot be my disciple. If you're unwilling to die to yourself, you are not a disciple of Christ. We need to let that settle in for a minute. Maybe you're an admirer. Maybe you're a respecter. Maybe a believer that he's, he is king somewhere. But a follower and a disciple are different. And he makes that very clear right here. You have to be willing to die to yourself. There's a story in Matthew chapter 19 of uh, the rich young ruler, and many of us might be familiar with it, but this rich young man comes to Jesus, and he essentially says, hey, Jesus, I've been a good boy my whole life. I grew up Christian, and uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, great job, buddy. Now get rid of all your stuff and come follow me. And what happens is that young man, as far as we know, walked away. So Christ gave him the call to discipleship, made it very clear what it would cost him, and that man turned away. What Jesus didn't do was lower the standard just to get him in the group. He could have. He could have said, hey, I know that's drastic. You're wealthy, so I know. Start with 10%, and then next year maybe we'll get to 25%, and then next year maybe 50%. You know, and how does that sound? He did not do that. Instead, with a very sad heart, he watched that guy walk away. He wasn't going to lower his standard. And that man, as far as we know, didn't, didn't turn back. And so he was unwilling to hate his own life. He was, you know, instead of turning his back on his life and his possessions, he turned his back on Jesus. And gosh, I think about that and I'm like, that was a call to disciples. That could have been Matthew. That could have been Peter. He could have been an apostle in the, the book of Acts doing miracles. He could have been Paul writing scripture. But he forfeited that. He turned his back on Jesus for his possessions. There's a man uh, by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor under the Third Reich who was arrested and then later executed for his connection with the plot to overthrow Hitler. His connection being tied to documents he wrote about rescuing the Jews, which was his concern. But he wrote, he wrote this. I want to read it to you real quick. He said this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Then he says this, When Christ calls a man... He bids him come and die. He went on to pay that price. But he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So what does carrying my cross and dying to myself actually mean? If we're going to follow him, we probably need to understand what that means. And, and, and truthfully, it's not complicated to understand. I think I've learned and, and seen that we don't understand it because we'd rather not understand it. We kind of don't want to understand it. But it means exactly what it sounds like, death to our own self, our self-will, our selfish ways, our self-life. We have to put that to death. And it simply means when God's will crosses my will, that's the cross on which I have to die. 
And then when we do that, when we do that, then we are telling Jesus, I love you more than I love myself. Because then I'm actually willing to turn my back on myself rather than on Jesus. Too often than not, we, we probably do the opposite. We say we love Jesus, but then in our actions and our choices, we end up finding ourselves turning our back on him because we'd rather do our own thing. That's why I think uh, love and obedience to Jesus are so interconnected. I'd go beyond that and say they're, it's like a marriage. It's like, the, yeah, there are two, but really it's one. Really it's one. Jesus said over and over in John 14 and 15, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So carrying my cross and dying to my self-will and self-life means I'm a dead man walking. And a dead man does not get offended. A dead man is not worried. A dead man is not anxious. A dead man is not bothered at all if spoken ill of or slandered. He's not bothered. Dead man is not worried about death, obviously. <laughs> a dead man is not proud. I mean, and so, so we have to check ourselves. If we find that more often than not, we're actually seeking to keep that alive, keep, you know, we're, we're seeking more to justify ourselves or more to defend ourselves and our rights or we're more worried about our reputation or we're easily upset, you know, I would, I would argue that maybe you don't have the mark of a true disciple of Christ because that's, the cross is the mark of a disciple. There's a verse that sums up um, the kind of what I'm sharing. It sums up also just what everything Jesus came to do. I call it his one-sentence autobiography. <laughs> John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There it is. That's his one-sentence autobiography right there. That sums up his entire life and existence. He came not to do his own will, but the will of his Father. And that is the way of the cross. Not doing my own will, but the will of the Father. Remember, when Jesus is laying out these conditions for discipleship and these conditions to follow him, um, he was serious about it. <laughs> he wasn't just saying things. And, but I want to say this. this is not, it's not that you've perfectly arrived there on, on the front end. It's, it's about the way in which he chose for his disciples to walk. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Hebrews 19, he says, he's opened up a new and living way for us to follow. And so you have to be willing to walk that road of dying to myself daily. Paul puts it this way in, in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he says, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This generation needs to hear this, that you're not here to live for yourself. You're here to live for him. That's what you're made for. Made for it, plug. You're made for that. It means that your will is going to have to die if you really want his will to be done in your life. So understanding this and thinking about this is something that Jesus had asked us to do before we commit ourselves to him. This is a beforehand thing. So one of the problems that we face is that Sometimes in a crowd, maybe like this room, when we're all excited about Jesus, we're all singing songs, and it's, wow, everyone's loving Jesus. So I think I love Jesus. And we can kind of get caught up in the flow without actually stopping and saying, wait, what's that going to cost me? What's that going to mean for my life? What's going to have to change? And Jesus is saying, no, you need to think about it before you make that commitment. And he likens following him to a building being built in a war. And the picture of a building being built 
I would say, is simply to communicate how to think about following Jesus. Just like you would think about building a building before you built it. You know, if anyone's ever built a building before, you know you have to, you have to sit down and estimate as best you can the amount of material you're going to need, the cost of the material, the amount of labor it's going to take, the time it's going to take, the cost of the labor. You have to calculate everything. And in the end, if you have enough money, then you say, okay, we're going to build this thing. Because if you start building and you get halfway through and you're, you're out of resources, Jesus said that's a disgrace and a humiliation. And it's useless, too. You can't live in that. He then switches to a picture of war. And the idea is to sit down and calculate how many enemy troops there are before you go into battle so you can answer this question. Am I ready for the fight? You see, if I, if I think the enemy troop has 10 soldiers and I have 1,000, okay, well, let's go to war. No problem. We're going to crush them. There's only 10 of them. we got got 1,000. But if along the way in the process you discover that the, the enemy troops are 10,000 and you only have 1,000, uh-oh. Now what? What's the result of that? The result is retreat. The result is ultimately you bow out. And if you think the Christian life is just, you know, a Sunday morning worship service and small groups hanging out and, you know, drinking Dr. Peppers, <laughs> think again. The day you become a Christian really is the day you've made an awful lot of enemies, including Satan. It's come, become one of your greatest foes. And I would go even further and say, beyond that, now you have an enemy that's even within yourself called the flesh. Whereas beforehand, you and your flesh were in agreement. I mean, you wanted to sin. Your flesh wanted to sin. You said, okay, let's do it. When, when your flesh wanted to yell out in rage, you were like, sure, no battle there. Let's do it. Just yell. If, you, if your flesh wanted to lust for, after a woman, you were in agreement and you did that. But then you came to Christ and you switched sides. <laughs> and now there's a battle. Galatians 5 says it this way. Galatians 5, 16 through 17. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Okay, so the life of the Christian is on one hand a building, and on the other hand a battle. It's hard work, and it's a conflict. It's a building struggling against circumstances, and it is a battle struggling against enemies. As I heard it said once, being a Christian is not a cushion, but a cross. It's not a bed of roses. It's a crown of thorns. And the best news about all of this, because I know this is kind of like, whoa. The best news about this is that we have a good father. Okay, so think about this. If we have a good father, so if, if I... You know, I have a two-year-old daughter named Adeline. If I threw her the keys and said, hey, Booger, go get me some Starbucks, that would be a bad father because her inability to accomplish that would not be on her. It would be on me. I'd be a bad father for doing that. And so knowing he is a good father and knowing he's called us to a discipleship that looks like this can mean only one thing, that, sure, with man it's impossible, but with God, everything is possible. It is Possible. You may think you could never live this life and you're not good enough and you failed too many times and yada yada. Well, welcome to the club. That's everyone who tries to do it on themselves. But with God, everything, all things are possible. All things are possible. Um, low on time. So what I'm about to share is probably, I, I want you all to focus in really on what I'm about to share because I feel like this is like, what I'm getting at. So let's go ahead and get the band to come on up. 
Y'all can go ahead and stand as well. well. We'll wrap up with this. I'm getting y'all to stand just in case you start to fall asleep. I want you to stand up because this is what I want you to pay attention to. <laughs> and because we're out of time. So there's a phenomenon in nature, and that is that there is no such thing as a vacuum. You understand? It doesn't exist in nature, and I would argue it doesn't exist in the spiritual realm as well. As long as a vessel is filled with something, nothing else can come in. I mean, we saw that, that video, and there was pottery, and there was a vase, and it was full of water. And as long as that water was in there, air could not get in. But once that water was poured out, air came right in. No problem. And so here's where the spiritual law comes to play. As long as there's something in my life, God cannot fill me. And if I empty half my life, God will come in as far as he can, and then my spiritual life will be kind of this mixture of the spirit of God and my natural self. And we, this is where we find probably the condition of most Christians these days, where it's like this weird, like, yes, I don't know what's really going on. And frankly, it's, it might be the condition of many in this room, where we, we've been willing to give up some things, but the truth is until we're willing to give up everything and lay everything on the altar, as it were, then God, I mean, we will never be able to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We can, you know, beg God to fill us with the Spirit. We can talk about it. We can pray for it. We can fast for it. But until we're willing to let go of everything and empty ourselves completely, we'll never be full of the Holy Spirit. So it's important. I, I don't want you to miss this. What I'm saying is the reason that Christ calls us to die to everything of this world, and in particular to that which hits closest to home to us, our loved ones, in our own life, is because he wants to fill us with his life. Don't be mistaken. It's not a call to misery. It's not a call to a life of misery where you're just like, oh my gosh, I just can't do anything I want, Jesus. Like, let me live a little. Like, no, that's not what the call. In fact, Jesus would say, no, actually, I want you to live a lot. I want you to be fully alive. In fact, I came that you would have life and life abundantly. John 10, 10. But don't be mistaken. There's only one def true definition of abundant life, and it has nothing to do with you. It's the life of Christ. That's the life he came to give us. But he can't give it to us if we're holding on to our own life. <laughs> it's a call to true life. It's a call to come and die that Christ might live. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Remember, this is Paul testifying he has died. I no longer live. He has died. What's the result of that? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Do you want the life of Christ living and working in your life? Come and die. Become a disciple of Jesus. So many of us long for this life of Christ to come forth, but for some reason, we can't put our finger on it, it doesn't happen. We don't experience this life. And I just want to tell you today, seek to lose your life, and you will find it. John 12, 24 through 25. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. 
and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So when you're engaged in any of these discipleship avenues that we've talked about over the past five weeks, don't forget the purpose and the goal. The goal is that you would seek to become a true disciple of Christ. Because if we come out uh, of this series and we totally nail the structure and let's say everyone in this room is in peer-to-peer discipleship and mentorship and evangelism and all that, but we miss the life of a disciple, we have created an overdone tent in the wilderness. So I urge you guys this morning to search your hearts. Don't just admire Jesus. Don't just respect him. Follow him. Follow him. Become a true disciple of Christ. Let him mold you and shape you into the person he's called you to be. And then empty yourself. And then say, I'm going to die to my own will that Christ's will would come forth. So we're going to pray. I'm going to pray and wrap it up. And just as we pray and take this time to respond, really I just want you to ask this one question. Just say, Jesus, is there an area in my life where I am resisting the cross? Where I'd rather not die? I don't want to apologize first, maybe. Whatever it is. Just seek. He will answer that question really fast. If anyone has a problem hearing from the Lord, just ask him something like that. You'll, you'll hear it pretty quickly. You'll realize, oh, I hear God just fine. But ask him, is there, is there a place I'm resisting the cross? This is the way of discipleship. So I'm going to pray. Father, would you come? And Lord, as you have spoken your word of just what it means to be a disciple, I pray that instead of feeling just down and like it's too impossible, that this church right here would feel, yes, God, you have called us to this life. That it would be a call to come up higher. Would you speak to every heart in this room tonight, or this morning, Lord, and say, come up higher. Come up higher. Take the cross. Follow me. And Lord, I pray that your life would would shine in them, that it would come forth from every person. Jesus, would you have your way? Would you minister to us? And I pray that we truly would count the cost of what it means to be a disciple. We love you, Lord. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.